the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and thank you so much for joining us today. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And uh, well, actually, you know, that tagline, it takes wings today because that's exactly what we're going to talk about. I remember having a conversation a few years ago with a couple of good friends of mine who are both doctors. We were out for dinner and I was thinking about the future of the next 30 years and I asked them, hey, you know, when we're 80, uh, what makes for a good life? And I remember my friend Rob just pointed around the table and he goes, this. I'm like, like what do you mean? Like food? He's like, no, no, no. Relationships. And that is borne out by the research too. That's what we're going to talk about. The secret to happiness. How are you happy at 40, 50, 80? Lessons from the longest longitudinal study in the world, the Harvard study, and why it's never too late to grow happier. Uh, and it's funny, it ties into our faith as well. So today's episode is brought to you by Leader. People want to be led and developed, not managed. You can check out leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com, for how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention the promo code Carry. you'll get 20% off your first year. And it's brought to you by Overflow. The days of giving the church the leftovers are behind us. It's time to empower your donors to give them from their overflow Go to overflow.co slash carry. That's .co, not .com slash carry to learn how. Well, Mark Schultz is my guest today, and he is the co-author of a best-selling book on the secret to happiness. And he shares his key findings on happiness from the longest longitudinal study in the world, the study of adult development at Harvard Medical School. We are going to talk about, uh, well, what he learned from profiling thousands of people over, get this, 84 years. The study started in 1938. Why success and career don't fulfill people, why deep relationships do, and why it's never too late to grow happier and how to do it. That's why I say if you're a person of faith, it ties into your faith, right? It's all about relationship, relationship with God, each other, and ourselves. And guess what? That's what the research bears out. Mark is the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and the Sue Cardis PhD 1971 Chair in Psychology at Bryn Mawr College. He also directs the Data Science Program and previously chaired the Psychology Department and Clinical Development Psychology PhD Program at Bryn Mawr. He is a practicing therapist with a postdoctoral training in health and clinical psychology at Harvard Medical School. He is the co-author of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. And that's a book we're talking about today. Well, I want to thank our partners on this podcast. You know, today's podcast is all about creating more meaningful lives through our connection to others. What if you carried that mindset into your workplace as well? Well, my friends at Leader believe that employee engagement is driven by each person's relationship with their manager and whether or not they are being consistently cared for and developed. They've created the first ever people development software to help you implement healthy leadership habits from one-on-one -on -one meetings to two-way feedback to goal setting and more for an engaged and healthy team. Because people want to be led and developed, they don't just want to be managed. So check out leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com, for how you can better engage and grow your team today. And mention the promo code CARRY, you'll get 20% off your first year. That's L-E-A-D-R.com, and make sure you use the promo code 
carry. And also, how about this? Are you leaving money on the table? If you're only accepting cash donations at your church, this is the case. Did you know that 90% of wealth is actually in non-cash assets. When cash is the only giving option, you're putting a lid on generosity. Overflow is here to lift that lid and unlock more ways to give. Overflow is an online software that empowers donors to easily give non-cash assets, for example, stock, and they can give it to churches in minutes. Usually that takes months if you don't use Overflow. And why is that important? Well, the average cash donation in the US is just $128, but the average stock donation through Overflow is over $10,000. The days of giving the church the leftovers are behind us. It's time to empower your church donors to give from their overflow. Let's unlock more giving channels for the kingdom together. Go to overflow.co, that's overflow.co, not .com slash carry to learn how, overflow.co slash carry, and you can learn more. Well, with all that in mind, let's dive into my conversation with researcher Mark Schultz, and let's talk about the secret to happiness. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I want to start with a Harvard study. This is a study I've heard about, I think, since I was in college, which is a few years ago now. What makes a longitudinal study like this different? Other than, of course, it's the longest study in human history of its kind. But just so people get an idea around the Harvard study, which I'm going to assume a lot of people in my audience have heard about, what makes this different? Yeah, so great question to start with. It's a study that's been going on for over eight decades. So when we talk about a long time, we're talking about 83 years and, and running, which is incredible. Um, but one of the distinguishing features is really the depth of the study and its interest in capturing the lived experience of participants. So from the very beginning of the study in the 1930s, the originators had the wisdom to really want to capture what the daily experience of participants was like. So they went into homes, they visited and talked to the parents of the participants, um, they interviewed all the participants, and this kind of uh, intense interest in the lived experience of participants was kept up throughout the study. So uh, it started with home visits, and more recent years we've been very carefully tracking the daily lives of participants, continuing this tradition of interviewing them, and also, you know, watching how they resolve conflicts with their partners. So we, we do a lot of this very careful, intense study of people's actual experience. So I would say that's one of the distinctive features. Um, another really important feature is the study started with 724 participants in the 1930s, and they came from very different walks of life. So almost two-thirds of the participants were young adolescent boys that were growing up in the poorest areas of Boston and tenement buildings and homes that very few of them had running water or toilets in them. Um, and they were really, you know, faced with a, a difficult challenge in life. And then not far away from those adolescent boys were folks who were going to school at Harvard University. So almost a third of the sample were students at Harvard and had a very different future. But that's where the study began. People from very different walks of life. And we've been able to follow them forward, of course, across eight decades, which is just remarkable. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you mentioned this in the book, but John F. Kennedy was actually one of the original participants in the study. And you know things like this is this is not just, oh, this is how long the average person lived or their income level. You know all that, but you know like how Kennedy voted before he became president. You right. know 
the quality of his marriage and relationships. You know his, not that you're going to divulge all that, but his level of life satisfaction in the 40s and 50s and beyond. That's absolutely right. And we also know it in this kind of age of technology. We know it in the hand that the participants wrote in, right? So we have the original questionnaires that people filled out in the 1930s. I've been able to touch those and to feel those. So it's an incredible, Incredible resource. We have drawers filled, you know, file drawers full of these kinds of intimate details about people's lives, which is just extraordinary. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many case studies in the book that got me thinking about the meaning of life. But let's start with what's wrong. What is, because we have a lot of young leaders listening right now, um, you kind of have this picture of what a successful life will be when you're starting out, when you're in college, when you're graduating high school, when you get your first job, and a lot of questions. But what do people get wrong about achievement achievement and success? In other words, we think this is going to bring it, but it doesn't. Right. So so I, I, I think we all think, many of us think that achievement and success are kind of the ends and the, the things that will bring us happiness and satisfaction in our lives. And we're not completely wrong. There, there are things that have a value that come with achievement and success. It gives us a little bit more control over parts of our lives. Um, you know, meaningful pursuits allow us to have a sense of purpose, which is important for our well-being. Um, but these things tend to take over other priorities that we think are just more important to real human thriving, to real human happiness. And part of it is that these are easier things to count, right? We can count how much money we make. We can put things on a resume and we can look at our achievements in that way. But things that are more ephemeral, that are harder to kind of feel and to kind of count, like relationships are actually the drivers of of what makes us really flourish in life. So it's, it's easy to forget that. And part of it is our culture doesn't do a good job reminding us of what's important. It tends to reinforce this idea that success and money and achievement are really the, the end all and be all. Um, and very clearly, you know, I think most of us know this or at least have a gut instinct that that's, that's, that it's not true. But in the book, we use some of these case studies to illustrate very successful people who, you know, without any doubt have achieved at a level that is just, you know, uh, really uh, unusual and maybe the envy of others, but maybe they're not living fulfilling and happy lives. So really important, I think, for folks to separate out this idea that achievement and success are critical for happiness. Um, You know, one of the things, uh, you know, as a Christian myself, a person of faith, the subtext. It's not a. It's not a uh, book that comes at at things from a particular religious experience. But I'm I'm thinking. Oh, Jesus was right. Like, what profits it a person if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Like, it. It's a very encouraging book. But early on, you tell the story. I can't remember the exact names, but there was a lawyer I think in Chicago, mm-hmm. and in 1975 he was making fifty five thousand a year, and then there was a teacher living somewhere else who was making $18,000 a year. Right. And, you know, if you're advising your daughter or son on the career path they should go, most of us would push them toward Chicago law. And I mean, $55,000 a year doesn't sound like a lot of money, but almost 50 years ago, that it would be the equivalent of, yeah. yeah, three, four, 500,000 a year versus... 50,000 a year. I don't think teachers have gotten much of a raise over the years. So, you know, it's, 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 it's contrasting, but, but talk about like with skin on some of the findings from those two people, because you track them from school all the way to their eighties when they died. 
Right. So we, we use these case studies in our book, The Good Life, to really illustrate what our research is telling us, right? So our, our research is carefully done, it's exacting, and it has lived a good life for academic audiences, but it hasn't reached as many folks as we'd like. So part of the goal of writing a book like this is really to bring it to life. And we bring it to life partly by animating the stories of these two very successful people, but successful in different ways. So one really leaned into work, uh, achieved at an incredible level, a uh, very successful lawyer, very successful um, academic in the law field as well, um, and really focused on that as the driving parts of, of this person's life. And the other person we profiled, very different life, was a teacher. It wasn't really the first choice, actually, for that person. The first choice was to be a writer. Uh, the war kind of interrupted and some family circumstances interrupted, and he ended up on a path where he became a high school teacher, and he became a beloved high school teacher, uh, one that was really an important part of a community, and maintained connections not only to that community, but also to his family in ways that allowed him to flourish. So two very contrasting lives. Um, if you look at the money they earned, very different lives, um, but they were each successful in their own fields, but really um, led a life that was very different in terms of their connections with others and the role that relationships played in their lives. And one flourished and was very happy, the one with those connections. And the other one was less happy through their lives, was one of our least happy participants. Yeah, there was a bitterness, particularly when he was in his yeah. mid-50s, which is sort of where I am. And I mean, I think you quote from, uh, again, the very words he used to describe his life satisfaction. And he ended up stereotypically very successful at work, I think on his second or perhaps third marriage, a little bit estranged from his kids and grandkids. And was it not that he kept expecting work to deliver and work kept like it couldn't satisfy that emotional void? I think that's right. And one of the, the parts that's painful as you, you kind of learn about his life is that he wasn't someone that was unaware of what he was missing in particularly in his close relationship. So he had challenges in his marriage. He was on a second marriage, as you were describing, and that also was not particularly satisfying. He also had challenges with his uh, relationship with his kids as well. They were fraught with all sorts of uh, tensions, and, and he felt a kind of at a deep level a, a disconnection with people, and it pained him, but he didn't know what to do about it. He was good at work and good at figuring out how to advance himself in the field that he was working in. But he was stuck in his relationships and remained stuck through his entire life, sadly. Any other myths around success, achievement, meaning, happiness that the study consistently debunks? And what's interesting is, like, this is not just, oh, for the current generation, they're unhappy when. I mean, the data set goes back to the 40s, the 50s, right. the 60s, the 70s. This is like eight decades of insights about what lands people being happy and people not being happy. Yeah, I mean, I think at a basic level, it's what we've been talking about, Carrie, that there's a, there's this idea that if I'm successful, and this is particularly true for young people, I'm a, a college professor, so I talk to young people all the time about their aspirations and what they want to do. So if I'm successful, my life will be good. And it's so mm -hmm. clear in the study, both the folks that started with some privilege, so the Harvard students, um, some of them were amazingly successful and unhappy, and some of them maybe on the work front weren't particularly successful, but lived a very happy life. So that success itself is not the engine of happiness. And then for the folks that came from these very poor neighborhoods in Boston, 
Um, some of them achieved at very high levels, ended up earning an income that was even comparable to the men who graduated uh, from Harvard. Um, but their happiness also wasn't guaranteed by their success. So this idea, which I, I know I'm repeating, but it's so important that we need to unhinge our idea that success is what leads to happiness. Um, and and I, I think that just it becomes crystal clear reading through both the findings from our study and getting acquainted with the, the life histories in this study. Well, feel free to repeat yourself because I think this message has been sent out for thousands of years and nobody gets it. Exactly. Including me. Exactly. I mean, I I love that you were quoting Jesus. And in the book, we try hard to quote, there's lots of ancient wisdom that tells us, you know, this message. It's very clear. It's not just from Christian traditions. Um, And and many of us on some level know this, that that we're not going to be happier if we get this one more promotion or we earn X more dollars. Um, but but we need reminders of it. And part of it is that we live in a world where we're bombarded by social messages, right? That, that success is yeah. important. When we go online, we see highly curated versions of other people's lives, and they look pretty near perfect. They're always on the beach having fun um, and doing something that we feel like we're not doing. So we live in a world where I think there's a lot of reason why these myths about success and achievement have uh, have particular cachet. So a weird quirk about this audience on this podcast is a lot of them actually studied Greek, or at least I did, and anybody who trained to be a preacher, you probably did. So you actually go back to the difference between, and correct my pronunciation, it's been a few years, eudaimonia and hedonia. So yeah. eudaimonia versus hedonia and that they produce two very different kinds of, of happiness. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, first? yeah. So we, we do talk about this in the book, that the ancient Greeks talked about this distinction. And it's actually a distinction that, oddly enough, has endured in modern psychology. So when we mm-hmm. think about um, a kind of enduring happiness, which is really the eudaimonia idea, that it's a kind of enduring happiness that often comes with a, a kind of enduring sense of purpose and that life has meaning. Um, and it doesn't fluctuate. It's just a sense that life has that meaning and purpose, that life is good. Um, and we can contrast that with a more kind of hedonic view on well-being in which we, we're talking about the pleasures and joys that we have, which are, are more ephemeral and they're fleeting, right? So um, both of those things are important. And in fact, in modern psychological research, most people will ask questions about people's overall life and their sense of satisfaction and purpose. So they capture that part, and that's understood to be a relatively enduring part. And then we also ask questions about day-to-day. How happy were you today? How much joy did you experience? How much pleasure do you have in your life? So both of those aspects of happiness are important, but that that distinction comes from the ancient Greeks, and it's endured for sure. Yeah, and I think often we get caught up in that hedonic treadmill, you know, good paycheck, success, nice car, nice house. And what the study keeps affirming is, no, that's not uh, where it's going. Now, I don't think I asked this in my original question set, and I can't remember, I was reading an early copy, um, whether you address this in the book. But did you see, because one of the recurring themes of this podcast, 550-ish episodes in, is that anxiety seems to be higher than it used to be, depression is higher than it used to be, loneliness and isolation are, are, are you noticing a difference in the generations, like overall, like the, the, the meta pattern of, yes, if you try to win the word, you're probably going to lose your soul and not be happy. That pattern stands up. But 
is there a pattern of um, people are generally less happy in the 2020s than they were in the 1970s and the 1950s? Yeah, it's such an important question to think about. It's also such a challenging question to answer, right? So the way we talk about our well-being the way we talk about even the concept of stress, right? So I, one of my favorite conversations as a, as a teacher is when I get to talk to students about stress. And I say, I say to them, you know, you all may know something about stress, don't you? And they'll, they'll right away, they'll mm-hmm. tell me we're the most stressed generation of all time. We face challenges that have never been faced before. And I have a little bit of fun with this. And I say, you're right. You know, you don't have to deal with the health challenges that the elderly have to deal with. And you are not, we're not in the midst of a world war that many people had to go through, you know, a few generations before. Um, so I want to say two things. One is that that if you look at the arc of the experiences of the participants in our study, they went through really difficult times. They grew up in the Depression. They went through World War II. Uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the upheaval of the 60s, the economic crises in the last sort of 30, 40 years, that we've been through challenging times before. Now, COVID is different. The pandemic is different. Some of the technology uh, advances are also bringing challenges to particularly social connections that I hope we get to talk about. Um, But we've been through challenges before. I think what's different is we're more able to talk about it. We're more able to talk about the stress and the idea that people have negative feelings and sometimes have mental illness as well. So I I think that's a good thing. We've had a cultural shift in which we're more able to acknowledge it, whether it's a deeper problem than it's been at any point in our history. I'm, I'm skeptical about that, but it's a really hard question to answer with good data because the way we talk about it, the meaning of these constructs has literally changed over the course of the last 80 years. I think that's a really good point. And if you don't mind going a little bit deeper on it, because it is something I think about a lot. I was talking with a friend recently. Um, you know, you read a, a biography of Lincoln and or any 19th century biography, and people were just known, they called it melancholy. You know, Mary Todd suffers from melancholy, and sometimes it was not uncommon for someone to disappear into the bedroom in October and resurface for life in May. And it wasn't really talked about. It wasn't really understood. That's just the way he was. That's just the way she was. Combine that with shorter lifespans. I mean, if you were 60 in 1850, you were an old man. And I mean, you could argue you are today, but I mean, health span in health span is increasing. Lifespan is increasing. I think the average lifespan in North America, the the Western world is 30% longer than it was a century ago. So you have all those factors together. I think you could make an argument that perhaps it was pervasive. People didn't live as long and people didn't understand it and you didn't talk about it. Or it's like, I remember in the seventies, cause I'm just old enough to remember that. Like you, you didn't have anxiety or depression. You had a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like any further thoughts on that? Because I think it is interesting to think through. Yeah, no, I think you're pointing to a similar thing that the culture has shifted and our discussion about it, that has shifted. And it's a good thing that we're talking more about it and being more accepting of it. I think the other thing, which I think you were alluding to, but I want to just highlight is that yeah. as we live longer, as we conquer some of the diseases that that challenge us, people are living longer. They're also less, we're, we're living a life that's relatively privileged, certainly compared to the 1850s, so that many of our basic needs are being met, at least in Western industrialized societies. 
So we, we get to spend more time thinking about our well-being. Uh, we're in that particularly privileged position where we get to think about, are we making the right choices? Because we have some choices. So I think there's a moment that's both a, a kind of change in culture and it's also a change in our fortune. Partly it's longevity and partly it's just that we have more abundance, that we're going to live longer because there are fewer um, you know, dangers out there. We live a life that's safer than it has been historically. And of course, these privileges aren't enjoyed equally in society, really important point. Yep. But relative to folks in the 1850s and the 1900s, we have options that were not available before. Many of us have those options. Well, and even back in 84-year-old study, back to the 1930s, you know, a lot of those original people didn't have running water, didn't have access. Well, people still don't have access to health care. But I mean, it was at a different level in the 1930s than it would be arguably in the 2020s. So I... Go ahead. I was just going to add one thing. Like it, it is so important. So you know, we go from 1850s to 1930s, and when you read through the the histories of these participants, a lot of them had brothers and sisters that died in childhood. Right? There were just things that we are protected from. Death is a big one. That was just a much more common part of life in the old days, um, and I think that's allowed us to expand our conversation again about what it means to live and what's important to us when we live. Well, you only go back a couple generations to discover parents who had 10 kids in the hopes that seven or eight would survive. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 84 years in, uh, you and your co-author are both academics. You resist simplifications, but you kind of did come up with a single sentence that was the secret to happiness. Do you mind sharing that? What is the secret to happiness? I will. So, so you know, when we step back from these details, and we are both academics, so we get, you know, focused on the kind of narrow and, and very rigorous parts of our research, but there's a consistent signal or message in the research that we did. And that signal is clear. Relationships keep us healthier and happier. They're really the key to human flourishing. There's just no doubt about it. I do want to say in our defense that both my, my the, the person who runs the study with me, Bob Waldinger, and I are also clinicians. So we spend some time out in the real world talking to people and trying to help people make sense of their lives. And part of our interest in writing the book was to take these complicated ideas and to put them in a way that were going to be helpful to people. Um, and and the, the clear message is exactly what we're talking about, that relationships are the key to, to healthy human thriving. So we're going to drill down on relationships and, and spend a lot of time there. But before we go in, and drill down, I want to ask, what, what other surprises were there? There must be eight decades in some surprises from the research. Yeah, I would say I'll, I'll share two of them. There are lots of surprises with the amount of research that's been going on. But the, the first one really does involve relationships. So I, I think we were pretty clear, and some of the, the folks who originated the study, even in the 1930s, were clear that relationships were going to be part of the puzzle of what helps people thrive. I think what's become clearer in the last 20, 30 years that really surprised many of us was that relationships are also critical for our physical well-being that they not only help us be happier in life, but they actually get under our skin, affect our bodies in ways that help us age better um, and live longer. Um, and that's a kind of, I think if we, we, we went back about three decades ago, that would have been a surprising idea. And we found that in our research and we were surprised at first. We looked around to see whether other studies were finding it. And what you can see over the last 30 years or so is a whole bunch of research that settles on this idea that relationships are critical for our physical thriving as well. So that, that's one of the surprises. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I want to get to the second one. Was it? I've been reading a number of books recently. Was it you who basically said the body is the mind and the mind is the body? We didn't say was, that, was that? But, but I think that's consistent with the message that, that we have, that it's, it's just so clear that the things are going on in our mind and our mind is, is, is driven by this physical entity, the brain. But the, the ways in which the, the brain experiences the world has a great impact on our immune functioning, on things like our inflammatory patterns. We're really beginning to unpack the ways in which our psychological experiences affect our physical ones. And many of them are mediated by our connections with others. We, we feel our most intense emotions when we're with others. So maybe it's not so surprising when we look back to see that relationships have this kind of impact. Um, but they're so critical. And, and probably the easiest way to see this now is a lot of folks are talking about the epidemic of loneliness and disconnection. And it's really become a kind of public health um, issue. It's, it's one that we think is a really important public health issue. And the reason it's a public health issue is that loneliness corrodes our physical health. It's corrosive to our bodies. Um, so that, that lack of connection ends up eating us or literally eats our body and, and has that kind of negative impact on our health. So I think those are surprising things. And it's an area of, um, you know, intense focus these days and also intense focus to think about how to remedy this problem. Why is it that so many people feel that sense of disconnection? So is it, is it a reasonable conclusion then that if you want to increase a lifespan and health span, build good quality, deep relationships with people? Exactly, exactly. So the, wow. the studies that have been that done, direct? you know, it's remarkable. But if you look carefully at hundreds of studies, what you find is a connection between social disconnection or loneliness and either death or physical health that is of the same magnitude as smoking or, obes or obesity, right? Those are two of our major public health concerns. So yeah, the path forward is improving our relationships. Was, it, was there any data, I want to get to the second surprise, but was there any data, I mean, there is the stereotype that's been out there for a long, long time, and I don't know whether it's urban legend or myth or whether it's, it's substantiated by the data, but, you know, the CEO, highly successful, retires in his or her 60s, usually it's a him, and phone stops ringing, nobody emails, nobody texts, and dead of a heart attack six months into retirement. Is that like a legit real thing? I don't know about the heart attack piece, right? Um, but I do want to say that retirement is a really challenging transition for people. And it's particularly challenging for people who poured their life into work. Um, and there are a number of reasons. One of the ones that I think people often land on is that people lose their sense of purpose. They don't have a reason to wake up in the morning. But there's another important thing that I think is lost sometimes, which is we have a lot of connections through work that, that when we go to work, um, even in this virtual world, we have connections with other people that are really important to us and in many ways sustain us. And when we retire, we have to rebuild our social network. So for many people, there are two things that are very challenging about the transition to parenthood, finding a new kind of sense of purpose and, and re-figuring out what their social network is going to be like, where they're going to get the things that they need to get socially. And I think those are both challenging. Yeah. Other surprises or surprise? I think the other big surprise is, is that, you know, it's sort of never too late that if you look at the stories of the participants in the, in the study, 
um, people make remarkable changes throughout their life. So we profile some of these. There are folks that go through their 50s, 60s, and 70s unhappy, feeling disconnected in relationships that aren't working for them. And something happens. Often it's something that they do, something of their own initiative. They decide that they want to change. Or there's a kind of just a serendipitous opportunity that comes about and it leads to changes. So this, I think, is an important message. You suggested at the beginning that this is an optimistic book. And I think the optimism comes from the observation of people's lives that um, it's never too late. So we have a story of someone in their 60s and early 70s that really turned his life around. Uh, very socially isolated, happened for a variety of reasons to join a, a gym in his 60s because he wanted to improve his health. He was having some health challenges and suddenly found a community of people that he was with every day that had some interests that he shared outside of the gym as well and went from one of the loneliest people in the study to someone who could count on friends to do things, uh, not just work out together, but to see movies together and talk about movies, which he loved. And this was a change that I don't think anyone would have predicted uh, for him. His kids wouldn't have predicted it. His former wife would not have predicted it. So um, I, I think it's an important story here, and it's one of hope that there's, there's always time to change. No, that's really encouraging to know, too. I, I, I have a theory, and again, would love your take on it, test it, throw it out, whatever, that, you know, about a decade ago when I was in my mid-40s, I, I kind of realized, wow, you probably calcify unless you're intentional as you get older. Like, I, I felt like there were two spirits in me, the grumpy spirit and the cynical spirit and the curious person and the open person and the relational person and I felt like there was a battle. And I'm like, if I'm not careful, the cynic is going to win. Yeah. The closed person is going to win. Because as we get older, my theory was we become more of who we already are. And if you don't like who you are, change who you are. So I've been very intentional about building relationships, staying curious, being more open, um, all of that. And I would say a decade in, I think it's produced some good fruit. But do you tend to calcify otherwise, like just sort of meander down that path to a very closed, lonely world or move down the path that, that you know, toward an open, more expansive world? Yeah, I would say I'm going to give two answers. And on the surface, the two answers seem like they may be a tension with each other, that they may contradict each other, but but they're not actually contradictory. So the first answer is yes, that I think if we don't work at it, if we don't work at what we call our social fitness, that it tends to calcify just like our physical fitness does, that we, we take for granted the idea that our social relationships should work naturally, and we don't need to put effort into them. And I think the people who thrive the best are folks who are doing something like what you're describing, Carrie, that, that they kind of take stock of their strengths and their weaknesses, and they think intentionally about um, nurturing their relationships, the ones that are important to them, and building those connections across time. So really important idea. Mm. On the other hand, and, and maybe this is another surprise, it's not just from our research, it's from other research. Um, as people get older, an extraordinary thing happens. They, they get better at coping with challenges and negative emotion. And part of that is this thing that we used to call just wisdom. But we think that people are as they age, they get better at valuing close relationships and what they bring to the table. 
They're less interested in novelty than young people are. So they lean into their existing relationships and they seem better able to get the good things out of existing relationships. And we think that's part of the reason if you look at, it's another thing I like to do with my students. If I asked you to kind of guess, I have my students do this. If we looked at the kind of shape of the curve across the, the lifespan of happiness, um, what what it might look like. And again, students today will say, well, we're going to be the least happy because we face all these challenges. And we talk about that for a while. And then I say, what about older people? And the stereotype we have of older people is that they're unhappy, that there's so many challenges of, of late life that they have to be unhappy, certainly less happy than younger folks. And what we see instead is kind of a U-shaped pattern that as people age, their happiness recovers. There's something quite extraordinary about it. And part of it, we think, is that they, they come to recognize the value of connections in a way that causes them to double down like you did um, in your 40s and mm. 50s to, to really think about what's important to them. And they lean into those relationships and get more of the good stuff out of them. Yeah, well, that happened with my marriage. My wife and I, as you know, I remember when our oldest son was 16 and got his level of driver's license where he could take his brother into town and we watched them pull out of the driveway one night and went, holy cow, like they're going to be gone before you know it. And it's like, okay, we better work on our friendship again. <laughs> and, you know, we've been doing that for a number of years, but yeah, it was a real wake up call. It was, it was it. And again, I've been reading fairly widely, uh, but I think it was in your book where you talk about that trough that you shaped where your is it your 30s or your 40s tend to be the most challenging decade of life? So I, I think you're thinking about something related to marriage that I want to get to. I was going to jump in and, and talk about that. But, but okay. generally, if you look at yeah. the, the curves of happiness and life satisfaction, they tend to be lowest for folks. That trough tends to occur around sort of late 40s. It's really midlife is when it occurs. Um, mm. It might be related to kids leaving the home. And, and that's the finding from our study that I want to get to, which I think is a provocative finding and really interesting, but makes a lot of sense to me. So if we trace, and we can do this because we followed folks across their entire lifetime, if we trace the participants' marital satisfaction from the time they got married until they're in their 70s and 80s, what you see generally is a kind of U-shape, that marital satisfaction tends to decline during early child-rearing years. It's hard to raise young children. And it reaches a kind of nadir or a low point around the time that their youngest child is about to leave home, around age 18. And normatively, across all the participants, there's a little boost that you get when that youngest child actually leaves the house. And we call that the empty nest boost. And it varies by people. And when you look at the size of that boost, the larger the boost, the longer our participants lived. So what I want to say about that, again, provocatively, is that it appears to us that the couples that are able to kind of turn in towards each other to recognize that their life is changing, that they won't be taking care of the kids in the same way, and build new connections during that time, actually build their relationship, those folks appear to live longer than folks that don't do that. Really? That's fascinating, because that was such an intentional moment for my wife, Tony, and I where we're like, you know, we met in law school, dated for 18 months, got married 18 months after, not only finished law school, but had our first child. So it was just a rocket race. And then we hit our late 40s, we become empty nesters. And we just decided we're going to date again. We're going to take the, the, the dating we never had, really, 
because you know law school it's, it's terrible <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna do it in our 50s and it was you know we miss our kids and we love seeing them but man we've had so much fun over the last yep. decade and not without its challenges but just like building that friendship discovering new things figuring out who our core five friends are like being very intentional about nurturing those relationships and I would say our happiness is like on the massive upswing compared to 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I love it. I love it. So that that's a good example, right? And it's also an important example. These, you know, the, the participants that we studied again, their midlife occurred, you know, in the 40s and 50s. So we're talking about folks from a kind of big generation or two before, but some of these patterns, I think, clearly are our universal patterns. So this experience of the emptying of the nest is a really important time of life for a marriage. And um, very few studies have the before and after data to really see, you know, yeah. what that the shape of that satisfaction curve is like. And then to be able to follow folks all the way to the end of their lives, it's very rare to have those data. So I, I love your story because it really illustrates the finding. Um, it's a perfect example of what we think is happening for folks. Oh, it gives me encouragement for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years too, you know, makes Keep leaning in. Keep leaning yeah. in. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, that's why I ended up, you always get sent advanced manuscripts from publishers, but that's why I went out and bought the book. I'm like, no, I want this in my library. Like this is encouragement and hope and help. And I hope that's how the young leaders listening to this see this. Well, everybody does. Um, another surprise that hit me was that apparently half of your waking moments are spent thinking about something other than what you're doing. Uh, more on that. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because definitely guilty. <laughs> definitely guilty. Yeah. Definitely guilty. Um, yeah. So this is research that was not done by us. It's research that was done by two researchers, um, Killingsworth and Gilbert. And they did a really interesting study. So they, they, they developed an app in which people could describe their mood and describe what they were doing. And the app sort of randomly texted people and said, fill out the app now. And what they found is that about 47%, I think was the figure of the time that um, folks were texted, they said that they were not thinking about what they were doing. Their minds were wandering. So I think the question I asked is something, are you thinking about something other than what you're currently doing? And people said, yes, more than half of the time. So first conclusion is that you're not alone, Carrie, that, that <laughs> human for minds to wander and they, they wander frequently more than half of the time. The other part of it that was really critical when people reported their minds were wandering, when they weren't focused on the activity at hand, they were less happy. And that effect was pretty clear. So that we're most engaged, most happy when we're present, when we're actively focused on what we're doing, not thinking about what we did before, not worrying about what we're going to do in the future, that our ability to focus on where we are at right now is important to our well-being is what that study suggests. That's and sort of the power of the moment, right? Yeah. You yeah, want to be exactly. in the power of the moment. I'm working on that. That's a growth area for me, but yeah, I wanted I wanted to touch that. Any other surprises or ready to drill down on relationships? No, let's talk about relationships. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh let's let's spell out the negative. W what are some other you've you've hinted at it and I don't know whether there's more or not, but some of the consequences of not having close healthy relationships. And, and maybe we should even define relationships because a lot of people would say, well, I have a thousand friends on social. I have all these people I know. I have these acquaintances at work. Um, so what, what actually meets the criteria of healthy, close relationship? Let's start there. 
Yeah, this is, again, a really important question and, and one that I hope we get a chance to even talk some more about. So when we talk about relationships, we're talking about your close relationships, your relationships with your friends, with your partners. But we're also talking about something that social scientists will often call weak ties. And we don't love that terminology of weak ties because it turns out that weak ties, these are things like your your postman or the, the bus driver or someone that you see waiting for the bus every day. Um, that those kind of jolts of energy we get when we connect with people that we don't even know that well, but we may have the opportunity to do and maybe even have the opportunity to connect in that regular way if they're on our route to work, that those jolts are important to our well-being too. So when we're talking about relationships, we're talking about the whole gamut. We, we kind of refer to this as our social universe. And it turns out, because if you think about it, like a lot of us spend a lot of time at work. That's one of the places where we spend most of our waking hours. And some people are lucky enough to have good friends at work, but a lot of people don't. They have acquaintances at work and colleagues at work. Um, because we spend so much time at work, those relationships are important to our well-being. So broadly, when we talk about relationships, we're talking about the full gamut from the closest relationships to those ones that feel more distant, but may also give us important things, including those kind of jolts of energy that make us human and those jolts of connection, right? That remind us that we're all connected to each other. Um, so you asked about what happens when we don't have those relationships. Mm -hmm. and, and again, we talked a little bit about the epidemic of loneliness, but I think that's the most obvious place that there are estimates of loneliness in the kind of modern Western worlds. There's also estimates at similar levels in Japan. Um, there are emerging estimates that these are problems in other developing countries as well. Um, it approaches a third to 40% of people say that they're lonely and that they, they feel a sense of disconnection with others. And I think it's surprising to people. So again, I work at a university and young people have some of the highest reported rates of loneliness um, uh, among all groups. They're, they're surrounded by thousands of people like them. They have lots of opportunities to connect, but they report feeling high levels of loneliness. So the question is what loneliness or disconnection or the lack of relationships does to us. And I think it, it hurts us in a number of ways. And to do that, we need to go the other way and to think about what relationships give us. So relationships give us so many things that I don't think we fully realize, right? So they help us through tough times. They, they help us regulate our, our emotions. So what do I mean by that? They help us deal with challenging emotions or when we're upset, we have someone we can talk to. They give us perspective on things. So it may be a point of validation that our view is right, or it may be, um, you know, gee, Mark, I, I don't think you're thinking about this the right way. I think you've missed some things here, right? So they give us important perspective. They give us those opportunities, I've, as I've suggested, for real connection. So for me, I, I'm a psychologist. I'm, I don't consider myself particularly extroverted, but I love those moments of connection that I have with other people. They're so important to my health and my sense of just being alive. So those jolts of connection, we experience joy with other people. We have friends, for example, or relatives that we like to hang out with because they're fun. We have joy. We experience happiness when we're with them. So I, I think we tend to underestimate what relationships give us. And then it's maybe not so surprising because we underestimate that what happens when we don't have those connections. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we think evolutionarily, 
in long distant times, relationships were critical for our physical survival. If we didn't sort of bond together, we wouldn't be able to survive. Pretty easy to pick us off, right? Yeah, Yeah. really easy. So social connections are really, you know, kind of ingrained in our DNA, literally. They're part of our genetics. But in the modern world, they still serve an important function. And a lot of people think about that feeling of loneliness as, as almost akin to a feeling of hunger. When, our, when we feel lonely, it's as if our, our instincts are telling us we need more connection. We have to satisfy yeah. that need for connection. Um, so I, I think this is a big public health challenge, um, and it's because of how important relationships are. So some of my regular listeners will be familiar with the Dun- Dunbar's number. I don't know whether you know that that number or not, but that whole idea that we're, we're built for 150 yeah. relationships, like personally, that was the historic village, and then probably 12 to 15 friendships and three to five close friends. And I found that to be true experientially. Any comments on that? Because I think we can be like, you're right. Uh, I mean, I remember college very well. You're surrounded by a thousand people. There's get-togethers, parties all the time. You're studying with people, but you can feel profoundly alone. Like, yeah. how how does that idea of like close friendship, friends, and then the wider circle, how does that play out in the research? So this is a, a question that I get asked a lot when I give talks about our work. You know, how many friends do I need? How many relationships do I need? You know, how many are really important? And oftentimes it's motivated by people that consider themselves introverts or shy, and they want to know if they have enough people in their lives. And, and what I want to say is the, the conversation really, I think it, it's useful to kind of move it in a, a slightly different frame, that it's, it's not so much about the number of people, because we do come in different flavors. Some of us thrive when we're with lots of people, and some of us, you know, just like some solitude, but also enjoy connection. So the question is what it is that relationships give us. And some of what I talked about before are examples of that. So if you're in trouble, do you have someone you can call and count on? to help you when you're in trouble. If something happens in the middle of the night, who are you gonna call? If you have one person that's there for you, that's good, maybe that's enough. If you have two or three people, you're lucky. Um, do you have people that you can go out and have fun with? Do you have people that can teach you things, teach you new things that you don't know about, connect you to a world that perhaps you don't know as much about, but you're curious about? Do you have people that know things that might help you when you have challenges that may know things about medical problems or things about how to do taxes um, that we need to figure out in our everyday life? So the number stuff, which I think is really interesting and, and um, you know, we often get caught up in, in um, whatever the number is. So Dunbar was an anthropologist and was interested in sort of you know, these different levels of connection that we have. Um, And I think that inner circle, which is the circle that we're most interested in, um, that inner circle, people vary. Some people, it's one or two people, and some people are really able to maintain tight connections to, you know, seven to 10 or 12 people. That's more unusual to do that. Um, But it also gets us to this question about what relationships are like in the virtual world, right? So, so, um, Dunbar is modern enough to, to have to think about these issues as well. And people have challenged um, these ideas about a set number in a virtual world, right? It's easy to have thousands of Facebook friends these days, or maybe it's not easy, but some people do it. Um, so, you know, what do relationships mean in the virtual world? 
And, and are they the same, the kinds of virtual connections as the kind of in-person connections that we've traditionally had? And I think that's an important question. Yeah, yeah I think it is with digital too. And I think it shows up in leadership in, in different ways. I think one of the reasons when I discovered it a few years ago, Dunbar's number, it's been such a, a helpful thing for me is, you know, when I started serving at the churches I serve at 28 years ago, there were a handful of people. It was easy to know everybody. I knew their cousin's name, their dog's name. You know, I still, when I drive around this neighborhood, I know where everybody used to live. Uh, and then hundreds of people showed up and then thousands of people showed up. And then I stepped away from that church and day-to-day leadership. And now millions of people listen, follow, whatever. And I'm like, it just gets mind-blowing. And I think what a lot of leaders have, I remember the first time, I think it was probably four years in a leadership. We were maybe 150 people at the time. But I remember for the first time feeling, I said to my wife, I feel peopled out. I don't think I can see another person because everybody wants a piece of you. Well, Mm -hmm. multiply that by 10, by 100, by 1,000. And a lot of leaders, they have the illusion of intimacy because they're peopled out. They've got staff, they got a leadership team, they got people who want a piece of them. You know, if you do what I do, speak at conferences, interview people. You know, but it's so easy, and I found this in the first decade of leadership, to get isolated or you get hurt by a friend or two, and then you're like, yeah, I'm not doing friendship anymore. And so, you know, leadership is inherently lonely, which back to where we started, you end up with a lawyer, tremendously successful, all the close relationships are fractured, he's got nobody to call if he needs to, you know, fix his dishwasher, because he doesn't have friends like that, he just has repair people. Any any particular pitfalls for the successful or those who lead larger things or just deal with people all day who, who maybe have this illusion of intimacy? That was a long question, but you know what I'm getting at? Because I think it's an occupational hazard. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. And it may also be more of an occupational hazard in this kind of virtual world, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I think there are good reasons why sometimes leaders and executives and maybe a business setting might separate themselves from others. There are worries about boundaries and confidentiality and, and mm-hmm. navigating those kinds of challenges in the workforce are not easy. On the other hand, we're human and we have to figure out ways because we're spending so much time at work, we have to figure out ways to connect with others. So I, I think a, a really important challenge, a task for leaders, for good leaders, it's clear that they do this, is that they really want to model for others what it means to connect with others and to be interested in others. So, you know, I, I think there are lots of examples out there, and I, I think there are famous ones, you know, that, that become TV shows and things like that. You know, you have to be interested in the people you work with and the people who work under you. And interested doesn't mean just sending birthday cards. It means asking them questions and being curious about what's going on for them. And I think modeling that behavior in a work setting makes people feel that you value those connections and that people are valued as individuals. So I I think, curiously enough, modeling that for others also has benefits for oneself. So, you know, I have taught for over... We're getting on three decades of teaching and um, I've had lots of students I've been very close to. And those connections have been very important to me. And at some point when I first started teaching, you know, teaching was challenging and I was trying to master the material and students had 
challenging questions and they had different kinds of ways of learning that you can become so preoccupied with the work that you forget that this is a basic kind of human activity that involves connecting with others and reaching people where they're at. So as I became more comfortable, teaching became way more fun, right? I began mm-hmm. connecting with students in a way that I, I wasn't able to when I first started, even though I was getting older and more different than the students, there was a way in which I valued those connections and I had more room for them because I wasn't just trying to get the task done. I was realizing that part of the task is connecting with people um, and optimizing their experience in ways that they would feel human as well. So you asked a broad question. I'm giving you a kind of broad answer to that question, but I, I, I think it is easy to separate ourselves out from people that kind of are under us and whatever kind of leadership position that we have. Um, some people surround themselves with a kind of, you know, a C-suite or an executive team or something like that. And I think it's really important to get outside of that team and connect with the people that you're leading beyond those, those immediate, you know, folks that you're in charge of. Really important. Couldn't agree. One of the, the data patterns that's emerging, at least in my world, the church world, um, from the just disturbing number of megachurch pastor failures, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, it seems that the data is showing that those who end up in a situation that isn't where anybody would want to end up doing things nobody should do, uh, nobody really knew them. They were isolated. They were lonely. They had no good friends. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and I think so important what you're saying, right? So, so I think that's true. And they were in a position where they didn't know what to do once they started getting into trouble, right? So oh, that's so a good way to look this, at it, Mark. Sorry? That's a good way to look at it, yeah. yeah like if I mean, you have no friends, what do you do? And part of it is this idea that we, we should be competent, we shouldn't need help, that we don't need to reach, other, reach out to others. If we're in charge, we need to figure problems out. Um, we all have vulnerabilities, right? So being able to share them early gives us the opportunity to take advantage of the connections that we have as opposed to trying to do it all by ourselves. So I I think some of it is when we get into trouble, because we all make mistakes, right? When we get into trouble, knowing right away that we may need some help, whether it's our partner or a friend or someone at work, uh, we may need help. We may need to talk about it. And we may be in a position where it's, it's challenging to do that. Um, again, because of privacy or because of the image that we're supposed to uphold. But having those connections at work, I think, are really important, at least having the opportunities to consult with someone about a challenge that you're having often will keep you um, out of trouble. Or if you begin to get in trouble, allow you to figure out the ways to get out of that trouble with the least damage. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by the research that says it's never too late, like people changing. Obviously, it's good news for all of us, but you're saying as late as their 60s and 70s, people are making big changes in their life. Can you, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to the, like having quality relationships, do you have any advice you would give to leaders who are listening who would say, yeah, I'm one of those 30 to 40% of people who would say I'm lonely a lot. What, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. So I would say the first thing to do, like if you're thinking about this as social fitness is really to kind of assess your fitness. So being aware that you're feeling lonely, really important Um, important not to dismiss those feelings or say that they're not important or I'll deal with them in 10 years or five years once I get past this particular challenge. Um, People need to start today. So we encourage folks to think about 
you know, regular kind of stepping back, reflecting, thinking about their social connections. Who am I spending the most time with? Um, which of those connections give me a kind of uplifting feeling or invigorating? Which of those relationships do I experience as generally depleting? And we may want to prioritize relationships that are uplifting, but we may also have relationships that are depleting that are important to us. They may be our mother or our partner or our sister or a good friend that we don't want to give up on. And that's a kind of indication that we want to lean into them a bit, try and understand what the challenge is and try and think about ways to move forward. It also may be that you need to think about new relationships for folks that are you know, chronically lonely. Are there ways to build new relationship? Is there an activity in particular that you can think of where you might be able to meet people? So the person that I wrote uh, that I described before who in his 70s joined a gym, that was a remarkable change for him. He had the opportunity to do that. He did it in his late 60s, and he met an entirely new social group that became really important, a really important community for him as he aged. So reflecting, thinking about opportunities, relationships that you want to build or rebuild. And then I think there are a bunch of things that we can do to kind of improve our connections with others. We want to be curious about their experiences. So you know, many of us worry a lot about particularly lonely people about, you know, whether we're doing this the right way, <clears throat> excuse me, or whether we're, um, you know, saying things correctly or whether we're, we're, you know, funny or not in relationships. Oftentimes relationships, we spend too much time worrying about ourselves and how good we're doing and not enough time trying to think about what the experience of other people might be. So what, what, you know, gets this person excited? What's interesting about this person that I don't know about, that I'm curious about, that I've been dying to know? Um, can I communicate my interest in what they're like and what they're interested in? So most of us, we know this from our research, from the research of others, most of us are flattered, empowered, excited when other people show interest in what we do and interest in things that are important to us. So leaning in with that kind of curiosity to relationships is a good way to start. So we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the interview, like longitudinally, there may not have been a big decrease in happiness from generation to generation, but longitudinally, has there been fewer close relationships that you can see over the decades? Is there any change in the data on that? Yeah, so I, I, I think most historians, when they look at the data, like, like I want to say um, maybe two things. So the first thing is that our cohort of participants who came of age in the 30s and 40s, um, they had marriages that were being challenged in the 60s and 70s when lots of people were experiencing challenges in their marriage. The very kind of idea about marriage was being challenged, whether it was important or not. So if we look at the arc of their lives, um, a lot of these participants experienced marital challenges, particularly in the late 60s and 70s. There were a lot of separations and divorces. So there are historical trends that are important. The divorce rate has slowed after increasing quite dramatically for a while. Um, it's slowed and it's been pretty steady for the last decade or so. Um, so there are historical changes that are important. Um, I, I think many historians would argue, and this is my own reading, I'm not an historian, but I, I'm always a, I consider myself an amateur historian. I've learned a lot about history by also, you know, reading through the life stories of our participants. 
And I would say that social connection has gotten to be more challenging today, that we're more isolated in many ways, that we we move a lot in modern society. So we're unhinged from our communities that we grew up. Many of us are far away from our relatives. So there are important social changes. That means that people may be more disconnected than they have been in the past. And then there's the phenomena, which which I would enjoy talking about for a moment of our virtual world here, you know, the, the, the role of social media, that during the pandemic, for example, really important those opportunities for virtual connections. So the opportunity to have video calls with family members and friends that we couldn't see directly because we were all social socially isolating, such an important thing, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic that I think many of us have even forgotten at this point. Um, but young people are growing up with virtual interactions as such an important part of their experience. And I think it's a really important question for everyone, particularly for social scientists, to think about what this is going to mean for our real world connections. So virtual connections are important, no question about it, but hard to do a marriage completely virtually, <laughs> hard to have an relationship completely virtually, hard to have friendships that involve activities that are done in the real world that are completely virtual. So I, I'm particularly worried about the things like the ways in which we deal in real time with challenging emotions or conflict. The virtual world allows certain things that we can't do in the real world, right? So in texting, there's a kind of intermission between texts in which you naturally take a deep breath, perhaps. Um, um, in posting things, there's a kind of time period or kind of temporal um, you know, pattern to that that's very different than in-person relationships. And we have, you know, again, I, I experienced with young folks at my university, there have been many students in high school that have spent most of the last two and a half years in virtual classrooms, not interacting directly with their classmates. And they're struggling when they come to college and we have in-person classes. They struggle with what to do. And they struggle at the beginning of class when, you know, there's that kind of awkward time where you're not sure whether you're supposed to talk to the people next to you or spend all the time on your phone. Um, these are real challenges that I think are new challenges that we haven't had in the past. Sure, phones made a change in how we communicate with each other. You know, I imagine the telegram did too. But yeah. the saturation of social media and virtual worlds is, is unheard of here in terms of its impact. On yeah, any other concerns about the way digital is changing everything? I, I think for me, it's this intersection of a pandemic, which has been extraordinary in terms of the social challenges it's created with a kind of generation of people that have been reared on virtual interactions that I do think we're going to want to watch carefully, right? So Right now, as we're talking, the media is very focused on the test scores of students in high school or way below, and middle school, way below the test scores historically, because school just hasn't been as good because it's been virtual. And this is national scores. So it's a, a real challenge for, you know, for our educational system. A big challenge that I worry about is how those folks are doing in terms of their emotional development. So they're not in school. They don't have those opportunities for the casual interactions with each other. They're losing opportunities, particularly for real-time interactions and resolution of conflict, for example. So I think there's a kind of mix of technology changes intersecting with the pandemic. The next few years are going to be really interesting to watch, is what I think. Yeah. The church leaders play a pivotal role or can play a pivotal role in forming community. What observations do you have for church leaders from the study? 
Yeah. So, so we don't write a lot about that in our new book, The Good Life, but the study has tracked people's spiritual beliefs and activities across their lifetime. And it's very clear. There's a question we ask participants. Um, can you tell us um, what kind of philosophy you turn to when you're faced with challenges? And a lot of the participants talked about um, God being an important part of their response to challenges or their faith or their faith community. So they talked about either their spirituality or their connection to a faith community. And I think those things are still important, right? The times have changed. Uh, there are perhaps fewer people in faith communities in many areas. The pandemic numbers also look like there are fewer people attending church um, post-pandemic. And who knows how that'll play out as, as the years go by. Um, but I, I think Faith communities are still a really important source of community for people generally, um, and faith leaders, really important source of modeling behaviors for others that we think are really important. So I, I think we don't want to forget how important it is to see people doing the right thing, see people talking to folks that are different than them, reaching out to folks that are less fortunate than them. So you know, if we read through our life histories, um, there's lots of material in there about the, the the sustenance that people got from their faith communities, from the church, from their belief in God, um, that helped carry them through challenging times. And I think those lessons are still important today. You know, I'm just writing something down here. You, you've said something a couple times, and uh, you mentioned modeling the way, not just teaching the way. So I've got a few things flashing through my head. I just want to flag for leaders listening, particularly church leaders. I think the current or previous generation of influential pastors talked about the way, but didn't model it. And if you look at a number of up and coming younger leaders, where they're what they're doing and where there's a lot of momentum right now is a no, we're going to practice the way together. Here's some rhythms, here's some disciplines, here's some uh, relationships you need to build in. And it's more not like, come and, and, you know, do what I say. It's come and do as I do. I think that's really interesting. And I think that's a, a tremendous opportunity for leaders to practice what we preach and maybe to even change our preaching a little bit, <laughs> you know, along those lines too, a little less prescriptive and a little more descriptive when it comes to, to community. Exactly. Mm. Exactly what I was thinking about. So yeah. I, I think that the modeling of people that we respect that are in positions of power and and influence are just so important that we're kind of thirsting for models. And, you know, we're, we're capable of doing good things, but we often need some encouragement or some modeling about how to do those things. So I love the idea that rather than just preaching it, it's about walking it as well, which is really critical. Like, like look at what I'm doing in my life to yeah. build up relationships, et cetera. I'm not sure I was particularly good yeah. at that in the first decade of ministry and have taken that a lot more seriously in the last 15 years. So it's great. You know, one of the, one of the areas that I've noticed, I'm, I have a particular interest in close relationships, so marriage and intimate relationships. And there, there have been folks in the clergy that have always been really good about talking about their closest relationships and their intimate relationships that, you know, and, and, and how challenging they can be and the ways in which they need to enrich them. And I think that that's a role that sometimes we don't fully appreciate it, you know, fully appreciate. And, and maybe it has to do partly with premarital counseling um, and the role that the church has taken in that. But I, I think there have been, 
important figures in a number of churches that I've really um, put out there as a model, um, my own relationship and, and the challenges that I've had. You talked about it I did. in our interview here. Mm-hmm. And my I wife think, wrote you know, a book about so it. Important. Yeah. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Cause it's real life. Like we tend to bring our A game to the public square and sometimes it's good for people to see the B game and the C game occasionally as and well. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's right, Carrie. And, you know, again, um, we've talked a few times about how optimistic the book is and it is, you know, there's always time to improve your life, but people often will say to me, okay, so I get the message. Relationships are important. So why isn't that we, we kind of lean into relationships. It seems so obvious what we should be doing. And part of the answer is that relationships are also messy. They're challenging, right? So being in a long-term relationship is really challenging. About half of them don't work. And there's a reason why they don't work. So there's there's a lot of work we can do to help people nurture relationships. And part of it, to get back to our topic now, part of it is really providing models. And those models need to acknowledge that sometimes challenges happen. Yeah, we all face things in life that challenge us. And for a lot of people, it's in close relationships that are important to them, but they're just not working the way that they want them to work right now. Doesn't mean that they'll always be like that, though. Well, and the same with friendships, too. They they can change and morph, and they don't always work out. Sometimes bridges get burned, and sometimes they dissolve, And but you got to keep going. Okay, a couple, couple of uh, just quick questions before we wrap up. How much of our happiness is within our control? Yeah, so there's some disagreement about mm-hmm. this. and, and Some would say like chemistry, depression, like can't control it. Absolutely. So, so the way I like to talk about this is that, of course, genes matter. Of course, our circumstances matter. The question is sort of, is there room after we account for that, for things that we could do on a day-to-day level? And the answer to that is yes, that all scientists agree on that. What they disagree about is the exact percentage. So there's a, a famous pie that a researcher developed that tried to apportion this into very specific amounts. And the amount that this person attributed based on lots of research was about 40% of our happiness can be controlled by us in our everyday activities. And some people have attacked that figure. Maybe it's too high. Maybe it doesn't recognize some of the complexities of how daily life interacts with genes because they're hard to separate sometimes actually when we get into the details of how genes work. Um, But the important idea is that there's a large proportion that is under our control, and that's the thing that we can do something about. So whether we're born with gifted genes or not, whether we have lots of money or not, whether we live in the right house or not, there's still a lot of things that all of us can do to change our levels of happiness. And that's a really important idea. Um, Another idea that's related to this is the happiness set point idea that that people may have heard about this idea that like weight, people kind of have a set point and after good times, your set point is challenged to raise up a little bit, but eventually we return to that same set point. And I think that's both true and probably too simple. Um, There are things that we can do on a daily level to change our priorities and to change the activities that can make a material difference in how happy we are and also how healthy we are. So I I think set point is is a, a, a kind of way of saying that we have a personality, a way of approaching the world that may make us sound consistent about how we think about things and it may make us partially be consistent, but even that set point can be shifted 
And it's shifted particularly by uh, events in our life, by aging, different kind of priorities and opportunities that come about as we age. And also serendipitously, we meet people that show us new things that, that excite us in new ways. So um, I, I do think that genes have an impact on us, that the set point idea has some truth to it, but there's lots of room for us to control our destiny mm. too when it comes to happiness. Yeah. And because you've studied people all of their lives, do you have a record of any of the regrets, common regrets of the elderly or the dying? We do. We do. So one of the things we did when people were in their 80s is we called them every night for eight nights and we got a kind of detailed portrait of what their daily life was like. And then we asked one big question. Um, so one of the questions we actually asked was about their spiritual life there. Um, but we also asked them about regrets that they may have. And I would say a lot of the regrets centered around relationships and they were all of a kind of consistent variety. I wished I had spent more time on relationships that were important to me. Um, another variation was there are people in my life that I was close to that I let those relationships erode. I didn't prioritize them enough. If I had it to do over again, I would have leaned into those relationships more. Um, there was a kind of complementary emphasis on work that some people felt that they spent too much time at work, that they had worried too much about success or achievement and wished that they had thought about other priorities in their life. Oftentimes they mentioned their families in that context. And then there's another thing which I find really interesting. This is, again, the wisdom of, of 80-year-olds. They said that they wished that they worried less about what other people thought about them. And I think what they meant there was that they, not that they don't want to do good things, right? I don't want to be misunderstood here, but that they wish they worried less about how other people perceive them, that they worried less about how they were doing in the moment, that they were doing something wrong all the time, um, that they just wanted to be in the moment, part of that being present in the moment. That's what I think folks were communicating. So reading those regrets you know, an amazing thing about this study for me, what a privilege to be able to read about people's lives, to, to feel the questionnaires that they wrote on in their own hand, and to, to hear people have lived a full life, and I know something about them, to then hear what their kind of retrospection is about what that life was like, really profound, really profound. For me, this is a kind of important spiritual experience, right? It's a kind of access to humanity, and a shared experience, just incredible. Yeah, so these regrets are really interesting to read. And those were the top three, I think, that I, I described there. I'm adding it to my library. It's a great book. It's called The Good Life. It's out in January of 2023. Is that right? January 10th, yep. All right, awesome. And where can people find you and some of the other work uh, on this longitudinal study, a couple of key websites? So, so we have a, a book page for The Good Life, and it's thegoodlifebook.com, um, good life separated by hyphens. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at my academic home at Bryn Mawr College. Um, there's also a website for the Harvard Study of Adult Development that describes a little bit of the research. Uh, but those are probably the best Great. places. We'll link to all of it. Mark, this has been a delight. Thank you so much, and thanks for all the hope and the encouragement. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. Man, I love that conversation. It just confirms so much of what I've seen in my life and what I've experienced in my life. And I want to thank Mark so much for that conversation. And you can find show notes over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 552. They're free and we got transcripts as well, links to everything that we mentioned. Thank you to our partners, Leader. People want to be led and developed, not managed. So check out leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R.com to see how you can better engage and grow your team today. Mention the promo code Carrie. They will give you 20% off your first year at leadr.com. And the days of giving church the leftovers are behind us. It's time to empower your donors to give from their overflow. Go to overflow.co slash carry to learn how. That's overflow.co, not .com slash carry. And you can get your people empowered to give from their wealth, not just their income. Next episode, we've got Craig Grishel back on the podcast. I just love having Craig. He's one of those guys who has an open invitation to hang out here. And we go behind the scenes on habit making. You probably heard Craig talk a lot about habits. Well, we talk about why he's not naturally a disciplined person, how he turned that around, the current habits he's mastering, including a deep dive on how to improve your sleep and the three habits every leader should focus on. Here's an excerpt. You learn, 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 learn. You're gonna ask more questions. And what you learn determines how you sleep, how you eat, yeah. how, you do, how you read the Bible, how you have a marriage. Um, how you think determines what you do. Um, who you're with impacts every area of your life. So, man, I'm glad you asked that. Because there you go. I'm glad the, I asked it the, too. The answer is probably more powerful, profound than I would have ever expected, but I would recommend the habit of learning, the habit of training your thoughts, and the habit of, of choosing your friendships, and that's what I'd recommend. That's a powerful time with Craig. So that's coming up next time. Also, who have we got on the podcast coming up? We have John Mark Comer, David Kroll, John Lee Dumas, Erwin McManus, Andy Wood, Gretchen Rubin. I've got Caitlin Beatty, Wynn Collier, Mark Batterson, JP Pocluda, and a whole lot more coming up on the show. Very, very excited to bring you this. And we love doing it for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review. It really helps us get the word out. And maybe share the link with a friend. Do that and give us some feedback. You can email me anytime at carrie at carrienewhoff.com. And a question for you before we go. Have you subscribed yet to my brand new email newsletter on the rise? I deliver it every Friday and I feature the most fascinating and curious content about faith, culture, technology, the future church, and other random things I'm interested in. If you want to start receiving On The Rise, visit ontherisenewsletter.com. It's free. It's easy to unsubscribe and to subscribe. So uh, I will send you, if you do that today, a sample newsletter, and then every Friday, boom, in your inbox. Now, this content is exclusive to newsletter subscribers. It is not published anywhere else. It's not on my blog, not here, obviously. And subscribers will also see a first chance to get giveaways and other fun perks throughout the year. So go to ontherisenewsletter.com to sign up. Join over 85,000 leaders who get that every Friday in their inbox. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. It is a privilege and a joy to do this with you. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break your next growth barrier.